And there they go. Give them a longer hand because it's taken them a while to get out. All right. I know we've been standing a lot, but stand with me one more time. We're going to pray over this, Romans. we got two, two weeks to go, and we're done with Romans. Did you know that? Are you aware of that? We've gone through the book of Romans, and it'll soon be on the radio. Speaking of radio, I was walking through the foyer yesterday, and I saw this big thing of, um, of uh, envelopes, big manila envelopes, and, and it, was, it was this container that was full of them. And I said, what are those? And they said, that's tapes that have been ordered from the Midwest. And it was this big, and it was a, it was a bunch of them. And um, so we're beginning to find our way in the Chicago land and mobster land and Indiana and all of those Midwest states. We're on 32 radio stations and we're taking the Word of God. And that's our dinner bell, the Word of God. Why do we go through books? Why do we go through the Bible on Wednesday nights? Because Christians are dying from not knowing the Word of God. And there is a biblical literacy, I think, 911 in, in this country. Um, so many ways to get people in churches, and some of them are good, some of them not so good. But one thing that I've been concerned about is that churches are getting away from the Word and doing, you know, pulling rabbits out of hats to get people in church. Well, I have a philosophy what you catch them with, you keep them with. I'll say that again what you catch people with, you keep people with. So I want people to know that if they come here, they're going to hear the Word of God because we need to be wise in the Scriptures. Amen? Amen? All right. We're going to talk tonight about a guy called the weaker brother. And then next week, um, let's see, I think that's supposed to be part 15. Oh, no, no. We have tonight and two more after that because I've been preparing one week ahead. So we're almost done. Anyway, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your blessing tonight. And we pray that you will open to our spirits and minds the understanding of the Word of God. Feed us your Word, Lord. Make us wise in the Scriptures. In Jesus' name. Now, will you breathe a prayer and just say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. I receive your Word. Amen. Tell your neighbor, the Word is good. Amen. You can be seated. So we do have 14 tonight, 15 next week, and then 16 which is just really 16 is a list of names of people that Paul knew and he's saying hey to. But a lot of, with a lot of those names, he tells us something about them that is very powerful. He's, he gives us a really, really brief biographical sketch on a lot of them that tells us something about what real faith and real growing spiritually ought to look like. So it's great, the last three weeks of Romans. But now, the weaker brother... What in the world is that? Well, last time we saw that government is ordained by God. Why? To restrain evil by providing national and local safety. Though imperfect and sometimes evil itself, as in the Nazi regime, the Stalin regime, uh, lots of governments through history have been evil. But even though one might be evil, God will still have his way in the outworking of history. No man and no regime stops God. Alright? Because He is what, everybody? What's the big theological word? He is sovereign. And so He's sovereign over men and He's sovereign over nations. Now, this time Paul discusses the principle of the weaker brother. He's, he's going to get down and personal now. Love will see to it, says Paul, 
that those who are weaker in the faith will not be caused to stumble by our behavior. So we're going to really get into now what it means to love one another. Now the problem of the weaker brother. Here's the weaker brother. What's he look like? Here he is. He often sees himself as the stronger brother. The one that's weaker. Well, how does he do that? The weaker brother is the one who abstains from certain things that you really don't necessarily need to abstain from according to the scriptures, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. The weaker brother judges people by their appearance. You know, you have somebody walk, walk in all tatted up, purple hair, orange hair, green hair, no hair. Uh, we got a lot of different looking people that can walk into church these days. And the weaker brother, he sees somebody that doesn't look like him, and he immediately says, they're not right with God. But see, we can't do that here because we got all kinds of people that walk in here. Amen? So, but that's one of the things the weaker brother will do. If you don't look like him, he judges you. And he doesn't judge you by the heart, but by the way you look. Now, the weaker brother fails to distinguish between the outward act and the inward attitude. See, a mature person will judge like God. The Bible says God looks on the heart and not on the outer appearance. And that's how we are to do, look on the heart. No matter what they look like on the outside, let's look at their heart. Let's listen to what they believe. Let's see their life before we make a judgment. Because somebody does something with which we, uh, he disagrees, the weaker brother, the weaker brother at once concludes this person's motives must be wrong because they do something with which he disagrees. Now Paul says first, the weaker brother is to be accepted confidently. What do you do with a weaker brother? Somebody who's really kind of hung up. They're hung up. They've got issues with people. Uh, they judge people by the way they look. Everything we just named, when somebody like that walks in here and they're judging things and stumbling over different things and having a problem with many different things, what do you do with that weaker brother? Well, guess what? The Bible says we're to accept them confidently. Amen? Now look at verse 1. Let's read the first verse in chapter 14. Paul says, Accept other believers who are weak in faith, and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Did you catch that? How many of y'all have realized that your calling is not to make everybody like you? Have y'all discovered that yet? And how many of you have discovered that your calling is not to fix everybody? I'm going to tell you, as a, as a pastor, the first few years I pastored, it drove me crazy. Because I would get up there every week and I would preach the Word of God. You think I preach intensely now. You should have seen me back then. I spit, I spewed, I jumped. I had to wear a suspender so my pants didn't fall down because I jumped up and down so much. Seriously. The people brought me three pairs of suspenders once. I said, please wear them. Okay, because I was very fervent. And, and what I would do is I would preach this truth, and as a pastor, here's what I assume. Everybody's like me. I assume that. Every, all these Christians in, in all those chairs, they all think like I do, feel like I do, have the same zeal level I do, and nothing will throw cold water on that assumption quicker than pastoring. And week after week, I'd preach, and then I would see that they weren't changing like I thought they should. And I said, Lord, they're not letting me fix them. And one day the Lord just said to me, you can't fix one of them. You can't even sometimes fix you. 
How many of you that are married have realized yet your calling is not to fix your spouse? Because if you think it is, your marriage is going to end up back there in that latest class real soon. Because you're not called to fix your spouse. And good news is they're not called to fix you either. There comes a time when it comes to people where you've got to let go and you've got to let God. But the weaker brother doesn't feel that way yet. He hasn't had that revelation yet. He thinks his calling is to fix the church. Now he says, when they come in here, don't argue with them about their different scruples or the way they think, think things ought to be. Don't argue with them about what's right or wrong. No questions are to be asked of him about his scruples. Nor are those who are strong in the faith to argue with him about them. By the way, how do I get delivered from being frustrated? I realize the Word changes people. And if the Word doesn't change people, I can't do it. So I preach and I let the Word do the walking. And I let the Word do the talking. And I go home and say, Lord, I delivered what you told me to do. I leave it there. And it set me free. So I'm not trying to fix any of you. <laughs> Hallelujah. Now, here's the background. In the church at Rome, there were Christians who had come out of dark paganism. And this is where all this came from, this whole talk on the weaker brother. Uh, these young Christians were shocked when they saw Jewish Christians eating meat that had been offered to idols. They said, oh no, they're eating meat that I know was offered to an idol. What are they doing? Because those idols are demonic, they're bad, God forbids them. To them, to the weaker brother, to buy this meat in the marketplace, which is where it was sold, and eat it was the same as contributing to idolatry. If you go buy that meat and you eat it, you just contributed to idolatry. The Jewish believers, on the other hand, were strong in the faith, thought that such scruples were nonsense because they knew that the idols were dead. They knew those idols weren't real. So they didn't care what it was sacrificed to. They were hungry. Okay? Now, to eat meat offered for public sale, even though it had once been offered to an idol, to them, to the stronger believers, did not constitute idolatry. But here you got these weaker brothers stumbling over what they're doing. Paul stepped into the controversy and advised the stronger brethren not to judge the weaker brother. Because the weaker brother, what was he doing? He was railing against them and pointing fingers at them and judging them. Paul says to the stronger brother, don't argue with him. He was not to be mocked, that is the weaker brother, or ridiculed in the local fellowship. Okay, Paul said, he's weaker. You're going to have to bear with that. Now, this, there we go. Uh, sorry, sometimes it doesn't work. We would say in our day not to major on minors. Jesus would say, don't strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Don't have major fights over minor issues which is another great piece of advice for marriage. Amen? Choose your fights wisely. All right? Don't fight over little things. You've got to learn to overlook little things, or you're going to be haggling all the time. Now watch. He said, don't lose a brother over a needle in a haystack. Don't do it. If, if they're having a problem, if they can't handle it, understand they will one day grow up. God will one day work on their heart. Okay, you're going to have to work with me up there because this is kind of 
Okay, Paul went on to say that the weaker brother should not only be accepted confidently, but also considerately. Consideration for other people's viewpoints is the outward manifestation of love's merciful conduct. Think about that. Consideration. Not everybody's going to believe like you. Not everybody's going to think like you. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, what about the foundational truths? That's what we call the essentials. But there's a lot of non-essentials where people are not going to agree with you. And you're not going to agree with, with them. And Paul is saying, if the church can't learn to overlook non-essential issues, the church is not going to be able to walk in unity. Some things, folks, don't matter. They're not worth a fight. This does not mean that we're to agree with everything somebody says or does. We're not. And it certainly doesn't mean that the church should not call a sin, sin. If it's a sin, that's an essential. That's not a non-essential. And, and if the church starts calling sin not a sin then the church itself is in great, big, deep trouble. You always got to call a sin a sin, but there's a lot of things in between that are not sins. We call them non-essentials. Now, it means that uniformity in everything is not imperative in a body of believers like this one right here. We don't have to believe exactly alike, nor do we all have to behave exactly alike. Amen? St. Augustine wrote, and this is something you ought to always remember, in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. But in all things, we have love. Now that's a great statement. In essentials, we must have unity. You, we've got to be unified on the blood of Jesus being the answer for the sin problem. We, an essential is the cross of Christ and He's the only way. That's an essential. An essential is the Bible is the Word of God. That's an essential. And we will never compromise on that, nor will we ever say, hey, that's not a problem if you believe otherwise. But hey, if you have a King James Version or a New American Standard or an RSV or an NIV, I'm not going to fight with you about that. Everybody knows Jesus spoke in King James. <laughs> right? I remember how I knew of a church, the sign out front said, King James only. I thought, well, there's probably 10 people there every Sunday morning. No, that's a non-essential. Now, some might disagree with me, but I'll tell you, there's lots of good translations. I'm not going to fight with you if you have an NIV and I use an NASB, or if you have a King James and I use a new King James. I'm not going to haggle with you about that. Come on. There's a devil to fight. God does not pour all people into the same mold. Aren't you glad of that? He's made us all different. Listen, if he made every snowflake different, what did he do with us? If he bothered to make every snowflake different, look at the variety in this room. Look at your neighbor and say, you're fine. And I don't mean that weird. Someone right over here looked at the neighbor and went, you're fine. That's not what I meant. All right, now watch. Look at verse 2 and 3 now. Paul says, for instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything. And I've gone to eat with some of those folks. And what they eat, you couldn't force feed me. But they eat it. Now, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Ever been out to eat with a, what we call a vegan? A vegan? 
a, a veggie only, they won't eat meat. Now, if I'm out to eat with a brother and he says, well, you know what, I don't eat meat, I'm not going to sit there and re- waste the rest of the lunch talking to him about how that's really wrong. I mean, if he wants to eat vegetables only, so what? So what? Um, our building guy, Ron, eats spam. He fries it. He slices it. He puts it on sandwiches. That stuff, if you look at the ingredients on that can, it's a heart attack in a can. It is full of everything you should not do. And when I learned that he ate spam, I tried to deliver him. I tried to counsel him. And then one day the Lord just said, Jeff, leave him alone. He's coming home soon. Just leave him alone. But you could not get spam down me. That stuff's nasty. But he eats it. I mean, it's his choice. Uh, You know what? My sensitive conscience and my wise intellect will not let me follow suit. But I'm not going to really judge him, although I've sat here for three minutes and judged him, haven't I? But hey, you know, Ron, go for it. Eat all that spam you want. But now, he's not going to lose his salvation over eating spam. He'll just get to heaven sooner, you know. That's it. Look at verse 3. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. Now read that again. Do you catch that? Here's what the, I've seen churches split over the color of carpet. I've seen churches split over a name on a sign. I've seen churches split over the stupidest, non-essential stuff. And you've got to get to a place, he's showing us, that you've got to grow up and love one another in spite of non-essential differences. All right? Those who don't eat certain foods, Paul goes on, must not condemn those who do. For God has done what? Preach it to me, everybody. Come on. God has accepted them. Ron has accepted, says Kathy. I know. It took me a while to believe that, but I now, I now know he is. Spam. You think it's a demon or something? Spam. I'm kidding. Boy, is he going to get this tape. Now, if a brother is a committed vegetarian, that's not the same as being a committed fornicator. Or a committed drunk. Come on. If somebody's living in fornication or living in drunkenness, they need to be approached and in love. They need to be rebuked and talked to. Because we will never agree with that. Because that's an essential. But the non-essential is vegetarian or no. That's a non-essential. All right. It's a gray area about which there's room for opinion. So Paul says that in these cases, we should live and let live. Now, Verse 4, who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Because whose servant are they ultimately? They're God's. They are responsible to the Lord. So let him judge whether they are right or wrong. Let him do it. And with the Lord's help, they will do what is right and will receive his approval. When it's not essential, let God deal with them. God, says Paul, will help them along into greater liberty as they progress and as they grow spiritually. Now, everybody gets this, right? This is easy. Non-essentials. You can think of a hundred of them. And we've got to love one another no matter what a a person adheres to or believes in or walks in as a non-essential. You've got to love them anyway. How they do their hair, how they dress, it's a non-essential, 
Okay? Now, next Paul deals with the issue of days or days that you honor or observe. Verse 5. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is just the same. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose, it's acceptable. He's talking about days now. Because these Jewish people in the book of Romans, they got hung up in everything. They were highly legalistic. They split every hair, crossed every T, dotted every I. They were really, really religious. And so it came down to what days you thought were a, was a holy day or what day you thought wasn't a holy day. Now, according to Paul, there is wide latitude for the exercise of freedom in one's public devotion to the Lord. We're not to be hung up about which day is the holiest or if there's any difference at all in days. I personally don't believe there's any difference at all in days. So what about Sunday? Sunday's not holier to me than Monday. Sunday's when we meet. But Monday's just as holy to me because it's the Lord's day. Tuesday, I don't care. Seven days a week, they're all the same to me, but some people don't feel that way at all. They feel like one day is more holy. Okay, for instance, Sundays are when most Christians in America attend church. But as I just said, each day to me should be just as holy to the Lord. You ought to seek Him just like you did on Sunday. We should seek Him every day, not just Sundays. That's my conviction. That's my conviction. I think the way you worship on Sunday, you ought to worship Monday. The way you read your Bible on a Sunday, you ought to uh, do it on Monday. The way you focus on the things of God on Sunday, you ought to carry that over to Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Every day is God's day. Okay? Some, uh, some people consider Christmas or Easter the holiest days of the year. So I'm going to be really sacrilegious right now and say, not to me. I mean, I, I celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Christ, but can I be honest? I, I celebrate the resurrection of Christ every day. I mean, we love Easter because it gives us the ability to, to win so many people, to share the word with so many. But when I get up the day after Easter, it's still a resurrection day. That's the way I see it. Uh, Christmas wears me out. <laughs> Christmas is a blur for me. Uh, and I'm, I'm thankful that at least at Christmas time, some of the country anyway focuses on the birth of Christ. But for me, every day we ought to celebrate the birth of Christ. Are y'all, you see where I'm going with this? To some people, those days are really, I mean, you can tell on Easter, people darken the door. They haven't been there all year long. Like one guy came up and patted me on the back one Easter and said, Pastor, you bless me every year. And I said back to him, really, once a year? It can't be too big a blessing or you'd be back. So what, what was he telling me? I come out of hiding once a year and I go to church. To me, we ought to honor God every day, like every day is Easter, every day is Christmas. That's the way I see it. Uh, for me, they're the same. Now, some feel that the Sabbath is on Saturday, not Sunday. And I'm not talking about Seventh-day Adventists because they have lots of doctrinal issues that are, are, are pretty serious. I'm just talking about people that believe that Saturday is the Sabbath. And you'll have people fight with you all year long about Saturday being the Sabbath instead of Sunday. You know what I say to them? Then go to church on Saturday. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I'm sure not going to argue with you about it because that's a non-essential. Okay, if that's what you believe, all that really matters is that you worship Him someday. 
If Saturday's your day, fine. Not when, but if you worship God is what matters. Now Paul says in verse 6, those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor Him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord. Since they give thanks to God before eating. Okay? And those who refuse to eat, Paul says, certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. In other words, the vegetarian in his conscience says, because of conscience, I'm not going to eat meat. I'm just going to eat vegetables. He's saying they do that to the Lord. Leave them alone. It doesn't matter. No one's soul is lost over it. Uh, The blood of Jesus is not affected over it. Okay? The significance of a person's conduct is not so much uh, what other people think about it as what the Lord thinks about it. See, we live and we die unto the Lord. We do what we do as unto the Lord. Okay? Even though there is diversity in non-essentials, unity is still not impossible. The Lordship of Christ. Here's what unites us. Are you ready? This is it. The Lordship of Christ. If you can say to me, He is Lord, I can fellowship with you. I can fellowship with a Baptist who does not believe um, like I do. Maybe he doesn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit or, or whatever. I can fellowship with him because he can say Jesus is Lord. I can fellowship with a, Me- a Methodist, a Presbyterian, an Episcopalian, a Catholic. Anybody who says I, Jesus is Lord and I love him and he is my Savior, I can sit down with you and fellowship with you all day long. I don't care if you're like me on the non-essentials. We have people coming in here on Wednesday nights who go off to other churches on Sunday mornings. We've got several Nicodemuses in here right now. They sneak over on Wednesday nights, and they do it because we teach the Bible, and they want to go through, you know, books or whatever, and they go off to the other churches on Sunday, and, and a lot of them go back to denominational churches. And so I say, hallelujah, come on. I, I, you know, in heaven, all you're going to know is some people are going to be there, they're going to shock you, and other people aren't going to be there, they're going to shock you. But labels won't matter in heaven. It won't matter if they're AG, Baptist, Methodist. It won't matter, Pentecostal. It won't matter. The Lordship of Christ unites believers not only in this life, but also in the life to come. Now, verses 7 to 8. For we don't live for ourselves. Everybody read this with me. This is powerful. We don't live for let's try it one more time good and loud we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves you are not your own you have been bought with a price you're not your own man not your own woman you are purchased by the blood of the lamb and so we don't live for ourselves we don't die for ourselves he says if we live it's to honor the lord And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. Amen. So whether we live or die, Paul goes on to say, we belong to the Lord. Because Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord both of the living and of the dead. He is Lord of the living and He's Lord of the dead. If you're alive, He's your Lord. If you've died, to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with the Lord. If if a Christian dies, they immediately go into the presence of the Lord, and their body waits for the resurrection on that great day. But their spirit is with the Lord immediately. Whether we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die right unto the Lord. 
He's the Lord of the living, and he's the Lord of the dead. The whole point of chapter 13 is that the believer is under the control of the Lord. He cannot choose either the manner or the time of his death. Wow. I don't care what you say. You can name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. You can do everything you want, but when your time comes, it's coming. And guess what? The good news is, until then, nothing can kill you. That's blunt, isn't it? But there's a security in that. Let the devil threaten all he wants until my time comes. He can't kill me. Nor indeed does death after uh, his relationship with the Lord. Differences of opinion fade into insignificance when death enters the picture. Amen. Beyond the grave, the Lordship of Christ is universally acknowledged. What's everybody doing in heaven right now? They're worshiping the Lord. They're casting their crowns at his feet. They're in an ongoing worship session that they don't ever want to end. They're worshiping. And what are they saying? He is Lord. Honor and glory and power be unto you. And when we get to glory, it will be our greatest joy to cast our crowns at his feet. You won't even want to keep your crown on your head. You will throw it at his feet. Now next, Paul deals with the issue of criticizing a weak brother. The problem of criticism. Now I know criticism never happens in the church, but let's just see what he had to say. That's a joke, son. How many of you have ever felt the sting of criticism in church? Okay? No more painful thing, I think, happens in church than when brothers turn on brothers and sisters on sisters and vice versa, and there's criticism and pain and hurt. Now, look what he says. As stated, the weak brother is to be accepted into the fellowship without discussion or debate. He's to be accepted. Yet there always lurks the temptation to criticize another because of areas of difference in his life. When I first got saved, I had hair way down to here, long hair, parted down the middle, tied into a ponytail. I had Jason's ponytail times three. Long hair. Now, when I got saved, I went into a church, uh, an official, I won't say the, the denomination, but it was a denominational, big, fancy building. I walked in, and I immediately felt unwelcome. Immediately. I had on blue jeans, pullover shirt, um, casual shoes. I, I love the Lord. I've been touched by Him, and I was excited about God. But I walked into an iceberg, and I noticed Him looking at me. And I saw what was around me, suits, dresses, money, sophistication, religion. And I went once, and I ended up going to home churches until I found a church that didn't look at me that way. Now, that's a real problem in the church. It happens all the time. And if we're going to reach the lost, we're going to have to be willing to have some very freaky-looking individuals walk in. Because to them, I was the freak of that day. And the Lord had a call on my life, but I wasn't welcome until I became one of them, which I never did. So here's what he's talking about. That temptation to criticize people who walk in who are not like us. Now, in the first place, when you do that, it's purposeless. 
to criticize. It doesn't solve a thing. Paul says in verses 10 to 12, You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat, won't we? So he goes on in verse 11, It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to God that Jesus Christ is Lord. So verse 12, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, in what context is he saying this? What am I going to give an account of myself to God about? If I criticized other brothers or sisters because they weren't like me. The context here is criticism. I'm going to give an account for how I either received or rejected somebody based on them being different from me. The judgment mentioned here is not for sins, but it's for the believer's works. His sins have been judged at Calvary and they're remembered no more forever. But every work that you and I are involved in as believers must be brought into judgment. It will be brought into judgment, not as sin, but what quality of work was it? Was it a rewardable work? Was it a work that God smiled on? The result of this judgment, which takes place at the return of Christ, will be either reward or loss for the believers. Catch this now. Now, every believer is going to heaven. But I'm going to tell you, church, there's not the same rewards in heaven. Every believer is going to heaven because of the blood. But there will be varying levels of reward according to the Word of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 14. It talks about it. Let's read it. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, or costly stones, or wood, hay, or straw, his what? His work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, that means the day when Jesus returns, will bring it to light. Now that word work that I have underlined comes from a Greek word meaning energy. It is, it is energeo. It is what you expended the energy God gave you on. I'm thankful that tonight I had the strength to get up and come to church and I've got the strength to preach right now. That's the energeo God has given me. And I'm using it for a good work. Now, if I was up here telling you a bunch of fluff and wasn't teaching the Word of God and did nobody any good and I wasn't being faithful to my calling, it would be wood, hay, and straw. And it would burn up at the judgment seat of Christ. But since I'm teaching the Word of God to you and to the best of my ability, breaking it open to you, the good work I'm doing right now is gold, it's silver. And it's costly stones. And when the fire of judgment comes on this very night and God judges it, it's going to be rewarded because I honored his word. Do you get it? It will be revealed, Paul goes on, it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, read the next five words with me. He will receive his reward. But if it is burned up, read it with me, he will suffer loss. You will feel the loss. If you, if you were out there in works that did not glorify God, that did not honor him, and that were not in line with his calling on your life, his purpose for you, it's going to be burned up, and you do experience loss. Now, Paul solemnly reminds us 
that criticizing another brother will be called into account at the judgment seat of Christ. Now that'll put the fear of God in you, won't it? Hello? Because man, can't we choose someone up in the church? As it has been said, the church has a grapevine Ernest and Julio Gallo would envy. I'm telling you, news can spread faster through the church than a fire in a dry field. Now watch this. Verses 12 to 13. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Did you hear that, everybody? Every one of us is, are going to give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another, he says. Instead, Paul goes on to say, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. If we turn the searchlight within our own hearts, we will find plenty to keep us humble before the Lord without being occupied with other people. If you work on you, you don't have much time to work on other people. Go point the finger at them. Our Lord Jesus, I like that graphic. That's a good one. Our Lord Jesus advised along the same lines. What did he say? Take the plank, the two by four, out of your own eye first. And then you can see clearly enough to remove your brother's speck of dust. Get your own life right. And don't go around judging other people unless God shows you that they've got sin in their life and your life is clean enough to go talk to them about it. Paul says that in view of the judgment seat of Christ, our decision should be to avoid at all costs doing anything which would hinder a brother in the exercise of his faith. How far are we to go in seeking to accommodate ourselves to the special quibbles of the weak brother? How far do you go with this? Paul places the responsibility directly on the shoulders of the stronger brother. In tolerating, I know that's a bad word. Tolerating doesn't mean you don't call a sin sin. Tolerating means you put up with something that's rubbing you wrong. Somebody's grating on you. You wonder how God put you next to that person at work. Why did he do it? To teach you patience. Now watch this. Tolerating means I'm putting up with somebody who's kind of rubbing me wrong. Now, <clears throat> in tolerating the differences in the life of the weaker brother, our attitude is not to be I have to or I ought to, but I want to. They're not to be dealt with legalistically, but rather in love. Now first, <clears throat> Paul emphasizes the principles of our liberty in Christ and begins by discussing the rights of a free conscience. How many of you have a clear conscience tonight? Okay. Now we're going to go into an area that's a little bit sticky here and we have to deal with it delicately. Let me do that. The rights of a free conscience. Verse 14, as one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself, even spam. <clears throat> okay? Isn't that what he just said? But if anyone regards something as unclean, here's the principle, everybody, get this, then for him, it is unclean. While conscience is not an infallible guide, it is wrong to, to go against your conscience. Don't go against your conscience. And don't let somebody cause you to go against your conscience. The stronger brother should not teach the weaker one to go against his conscience. Rather, he should teach him to educate his conscience 
by the Word of God. If I see a brother who is a vegetarian and, and he said, you know, I wish I could eat meat, but I just have a problem with it, then what I can do is I can maybe minister the Word of God to him that everything is to be received with thanksgiving and nothing to be refused because it's sanctified by the Word of God in prayer, then the Word may set him free. But I am not to talk him into defiling his conscience. Paul, of course, is not talking about anything morally impure. That's an essential. He is talking about non-essentials like eating meat offered to an idol. Now, only the power of the Word of God can set a brother free by realizing the idol is lifeless. Therefore, to eat meat offered to the idol is not truly sinful. He's okay. It is through the work of God's Word and His grace that we are delivered from all the fuss and all the bother of empty, futile religion. All right? This is our birthright as children of God, but it's usually enjoyed only by those who have grown into Christian adulthood. Isn't a Christian adult as they grew in the, in the things of the Spirit in that day? One day these people would wake up and go, you know, that idol's dead. There's nothing real in it. I can eat this meat. It doesn't mean a thing. Thank you, Jesus, for this meat. Amen. And their conscience is okay. The conscience, as we grow spiritually, is able to receive some things, not sin, but non-essentials that it couldn't when you were younger. This is a part of growing. Yet here's a higher law that comes into play, and it's this. Love requires self-limitations for the sake of others. Are y'all there? And this is the higher law. I may be able to eat that meat, but if I'm out with Joe Smith and John Doe and they believe that meat is wrong, but I know it's okay. And I say, well, I'm just going to eat the meat. I don't care what they think, but they think it's actually a sin. And I decide to exercise my Christian liberty and eat it anyway, and they stumble over it. I have just transgressed the law of love. In other words, there are times you should say no for the sake of others. Verse 15, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Are y'all catching this now? This is powerful. Now here's the familiar question. Well, am I my brother's keeper? Can I tell you? Yes, you are. You are the keeper of your brother's conscience. Let me give you an example. The Bible does not say that having a drink is wrong that I can tell. Now I know people would disagree with me. Some would say, uh, well it was never fermented in the Bible. I, I've never been able to find that. To have, the Bible talks about not getting drunk. I've never been able to find that it said don't have a drink. But here's the deal. I don't drink anything ever in any circumstance, in any setting, alone or in public, ever. Don't touch it. Don't want to. Now, several reasons for that. One is, um, I don't need it. I just don't need it. I think we ought to be working on learning how to access the Holy Spirit instead of a Miller Lite. I don't need it. But now, here's another reason. I don't want to be able to say, if somebody in our church, because there's lots of people in our church struggle with alcohol, we have people that are coming out of alcoholism. If one of them were to come up to me and say, 
Pastor, do you ever drink? I don't want to have to say to them, well, yeah, you know, when I'm alone. Or I don't want to have to lie either. So I want to be able to say, no, never. I don't need it. My drink is the Word of God. My drink is reading about the Lord, searching the Scriptures, uh, meditating in the things of God, ministering to people. That's my drink. If I'm going to be drunk, it's going to be in the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to be able to say that. I want to be able to say that and not be lying. Why? Because if the preacher said to them, well, sure, yeah, I drink every once in a while, then that's all the devil needs in their mind to say, well, then you can do that too. So for the sake of the weaker brother, it's not the only reason, but it's one reason. I won't touch it. I'm really working on giving up those cigars, but as for now, I'm kidding. As a matter of fact, I want to show you a story here. Every, every believer is his brother's keeper and must refrain from anything that would lead him astray. To have a clear conscience in that which the mature Christian allows in his own life is one thing. But to exercise that freedom to the peril of another man's soul is something else. I personally don't believe, and I know this is going to rain on some of y'all's parade. I, I, I'm not condemning you. You know my heart. But I don't think any Christian ought to drink in public. Because there's always someone watching. I was on a jet one time, and I was right behind first class where that little wall is that separates the two. And I saw a, a preacher who I knew, I knew the name, I knew the person, and he ordered several drinks. Didn't know that a few aisles behind him sat me. Now, I don't condemn him for it. I don't. But what if I had been a struggling alcoholic and had admired him? You see what I'm saying? Well, Pastor Jeff, gosh, man, then I can't go have any fun. You don't need booze to have fun. Why do you need that to have fun? If you need that to have fun, you need counsel. Boy, it's quiet in here tonight. Man, it's quiet in here tonight. They won't even laugh when I joke. They're, they're really thinking. I'm sorry. Uh just being truthful that's the way i see it now no believer should exercise personal privilege over church-wide responsibility verse 16 don't allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil if you make a brother stumble by what you consider good then it's going to be spoken of as evil if a person exercises his stronger faith to the detriment of a weak brother he gives the wrong impression to him about the christian life the greater uh, the great preacher charles spurgeon smoked cigars <laughs> he really did for many years, to him, smoking was no sin. As a matter of fact, he had gout real bad. And he was convinced that the cigar smoke uh, helped some of the pain of the gout. That's just what he was convinced of. One day, a Methodist preacher said to him, Charles, when are you going to quit smoking those cigars? And he said, well, I guess when I catch myself smoking two at the same time. In other words, leave me alone. But one day, he discovered that a tobacco firm was advertising themselves as the brand that Spurgeon smokes because he was very famous well he quit from that day forward why because he was making people stumble now verses 17 and 18 for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but it's righteousness read it with me everybody it's righteousness and peace and it's joy in the Holy Spirit for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men living according to the principle of love is good 
both to God and men. So when you and I say, I won't do that because of them, because of my children, because of my spouse, because of my, the closed circle of people around me that know that I have confessed faith in Christ, I won't do it. I'm just not going to do it. God says, that's good. The law of love is higher than the law of Christian liberty. You know what? We'll stop right there. Because I think we need to just, uh, it's, it's time to stand up together and we'll finish it up next week. We're nearing the end and we almost made it. But I want us to give this to the Lord. Y'all understand, don't you, that I don't condemn. You, you know that, don't you? I don't. But can I be honest with you? How many, how many tragedies, just, just a for instance here, how many tragedies have we seen from people drinking? Just take the drinking. Um, how many unwanted children how many STDs how many burn consciences the next day how many bad decisions made when you knew better because with every sip you take and I didn't mean for this to be about this tonight I really didn't but every sip you take you lower your ability to make a good decision. Seriously. I'm not saying you don't ever do it. I'm not laying a legalistic thing on you. That's not what I'm doing. Um, but for the most part, if you were to ask me, what is your wisdom on this? I would say, learn to access the Holy Spirit. Don't let something like drinking make a fool out of you. Now, you could go home tonight and have a wine. I don't, listen, I don't even want to know. That's your deal. But Paul once said, I think I have the Spirit of God. And I say, I think overall it's wisest. There you go. Now, you go do what you want. I love you anyway. And... If you have a drink, that's a non-essential. That's not, you're not going to hell over that. Okay? So y'all say, I love you anyway. You chew the meat, spit out the bones, go home, pray about it, and we'll just leave it right there. Father, we just thank you for the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, for the weaker brother and that we're not to judge or criticize, but really, Lord, to bear up with them and stay with them and love them, and they will grow like we did we were once weaker in many ways in some ways Lord yet tonight we're still weak in some areas and we need you to make us strong Lord thank you for your peace and for your blessing thank you for your word tonight and Lord I thank you that it's received in the way that it was intended and I thank you Lord God for helping us to be mighty in spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. Amen. <laughs>